Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Sclepius podcast and the first episode of the new season. Feels great to finally get this one out. Anyway, the Sclepius podcast is where we contribute to the open discourse between healthcare, science, students, and the public with your host, Timothy Jew. Just a preface, I am simply a biochemistry graduate that is applying to medical school currently, so check in with your personal physician before making any decisions regarding your own health. I am not a governing authority on any topics. Well, at least for the time being. Anyway, in this podcast, we have guest speaker Dr. Nancy Major, MD. We'll be going over topics such as the time before HIPAA, imposter syndrome, representation in medicine, the competitive culture of medicine, being present with patients, and so much more. Please don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share, and all that good stuff. It really helps the algorithm, and we'll get the information out quicker. Regardless, hope you all enjoy. But before we go on to the rest of the podcast episode, we have to mention our sponsor for today, which is us, the Asclepius Podcast. Now, you can support this project not only by listening as you are already doing, following, hitting the like button, telling your friends, family, colleagues, loved ones all about this project as well, but you can also support us on our website. That's T-H-E-A-S-C-L-E-P-I-U-S podcast.myshopify.com. Now, just a constant reminder, 10% of all proceeds from this project goes to Children's Hospital. But anyway, let's get you back to the episode because this one's a banger. I am so sorry, my fellow learners. This is one of those episodes that just breaks my heart, four chambers and all. For this episode, a lot of it had to be cut down or drastically edited due to the noise quality. To set context, while I was first applying to medical school, I happened to be talking with my pre-health advisors who advised me to get into contact with Dr. Nancy. We had a little conversation over email and eventually we got to talking over the phone. It was at this moment where Dr. Nancy graciously agreed to share her wisdom on the podcast, and it was also at this moment where it was decided that we would have our first in-person episode at Dr. Nancy's amazingly gorgeous house, which also happened to have an amazingly gorgeous yard. Keep the yard in mind as it will become the etiology of my self-diagnosis of sadness. Unfortunately, at the time, not only was I inexperienced with capturing good quality audio on site, but there was also a substantial amount of background noise as Dr. Nancy was having yard work being done. All in all, I'm hoping the content of our discussion will hopefully make up for my lack of audio mastery, and I will leave it at that. Now, let's introduce Dr. Nancy Major MD. In summation, I would state that Dr. Nancy is just a pleasant surprise through and through. On the exterior, Dr. Nancy comes off as someone that is so well put together and so accomplished that it would be easy to feel intimidated or feel inadequate around her. However, throughout my whole time getting to interact with her, I couldn't help but feel like I deserved to occupy the space that I was occupying, to be myself. Perhaps it was the body positioning, perhaps it was eye contact, but what I came to realize is that Dr. Nancy is simply a master of listening. It made me realize how nice it is and how rare it is to have someone's full attention soaking up your every word, 
despite all the Timmy tangents you may eventually find yourself following. So, as we all prepare to practice those skills ourselves for this podcast, Dr. Nancy, could I have you introduce yourself? After all these years, it's still difficult to say things about myself. Basically, um, I am a musculoskeletal radiologist. And I came to do that through a rather circuitous route. I went to med school at Tufts in Boston. And then um, I was actually in the military to pay for med school. So I, I did my internship in the Army and was out in San Francisco. Um, was diagnosed with uh, recurrent stress fractures from mm-hmm. training. So then I was medically boarded from the military. Um, but prior to that, I did my first year of residency in OBGYN. Mm. And then because of the stress fractures and non-weight bearing, um, I had a trial in uh, pathology, which didn't work out very well for me. Mm. And then I um, fell in love with radiology, which is where the orthopedic surgeon really wanted to place me so that I could rest and in and not be weight bearing. While I was being medically boarded, I started my radiology in the Naval Hospital, which was very funny to be in the Army, but at the Naval Hospital. It was an interesting experiment that occurred in Washington, D.C. And nevertheless, I I, um, was out of the military and started a radiology residency at UCSF in San Francisco, um, and then finished my training there, went to Duke to do my fellowship. So I did my musculoskeletal fellowship there, loved the academic environment, and and kind of always knew that I wanted to teach. So um, uh, I became fairly prolific in writing really early on in my uh, career. Um, I would write and do a lot of collaborative research projects. And then I stayed on staff there for 13 years, and then left Duke, went to the University of Pennsylvania, was the chief of our MSK musculoskeletal section and um and I was there for a couple of years my I was a single mom Mm. so um I was spending a lot of time at work which is tough as a single mom so I was given a really great opportunity to be the radiologist in a very subspecialized busy orthopedic practice relatively close to where I was living Mm. and that was better as a mom to be home at the end of the day and not have to do call on weekends and things so I did that for a short while and then came out to Colorado. When you were going through the army and you said that you went through these recurring fractures how did you get through that moment and how did you grit through? It was really interesting because I to me um, I kind of just got used to um the feeling that existed in my hip. So um, I was running a lot in San Francisco and I I liked hill running and so on. And I knew that I would always start off with the pain in my groin, but after like two or three miles, it would go away. And so I knew that if I invested those first 15 minutes or so, then it would get better. And I just had to plow through that first 15 minutes. Um, but it wasn't until a night that uh, I was on call as an intern and um, there was a, a, a patient who came in with a bad orthopedic injury and the orthopedic resident on call that night um, was, he saw me limping 
And I just never even thought anything of it because it became sort of like a natural state for me. I was just doing it all of the time. And he asked me why I was limping. And that led to uh, some x-rays and an exam. And, uh, you know, and he handed me some crutches that night. And I was like, I can't do this. I'm I'm on call. <laughs> I'm not going to try to figure out how to handle crutches. So I never used them. But I went to morning report the next day, which were the admissions that occurred during the night. By coincidence, I was on the orthopedic service. And my x-rays were up on the, on the board, and they were presenting me as an interesting case. I walked into the back of the room, and I was like, this is before HIPAA was wow, <laughs> really enforced. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was sort of just standing there like, wow, like, and listened, obviously, to the discussion that was ensuing, which I heard a lot of it, it, things about crutch ambulation and uh, arguing for, you know, sedentary activity and all of this. And then, you know, I, I was about two weeks away from starting residency. So this was like, you know, so ultimately, um, when I started no BGYN, um, there's not a lot, a lot of time to you know, either be sitting or figuring out how to get crutches. And I was in the Naval Hospital where the GYN floor uh, was the floor below the labor deck. Mm. And, you know, babies are rarely born in the daytime. So, so there, there was a lot of activity. You're covering both floors and, uh, and there was no way that I could handle, you know, stairs and crutches. I just was not that, mm. you know, good at it. Yeah. So ditched the crutches, kept walking on it. And I just put myself in a very bad situation. And then ultimately they're like, you can't do this. Cause I was so non-compliant. I was like, totally have to admit that so but it just was the way that it, it was and so that's what that's what led to pathology that's what led to radiology and then that led to my amazing career that i've just loved now you all know by now that i am a sucker for all the crazy twists and turns that people's lives can take so of course we're going to go and unpack all of this what i want to touch upon is this time before hipaa to be honest, it's sort of hard to imagine. If only we had like a BBC documentary of this prehistoric era so that we could better visualize what this means. As the artificial white lights filter through the dense canopy of dead flies and other unfortunate insects caught within the ceiling fixture, we see a group of wild physicians meandering through the nurses to the nearest coffee brewing machine. Ah, listen closely. You can hear them quietly going over a case with no regards to the patient's privacy. Yeah, so this patient, Harry Dardos, comes in with this nasty looking ulcer. Wouldn't heal for several years. So you ordered a bilateral ultrasound? Yeah, well, I mean, before we get into the juicy details, don't you want to go over, like, their social security number and personal information first? Yeah. Also, like, maybe we could go somewhere more public. I feel a little cramped here, not gonna lie. Dude, I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah, so anyway, as I was saying, you got some crazy weird-looking legs, probably has some insecurities, custom child. <sighs> such an interesting species enjoying their finite time within the great ecosystem of healthcare, distributing patient information equally throughout all space as if agents of entropy themselves. These unsuspecting creatures, 
are about to experience such an environmental shift that only the fittest will survive. A strong selective pressure, better known as HIPAA. Okay, okay. Sorry. I couldn't help myself. To explain this little tangent, way back in sophomore year of college, we had to do a little project for organic chemistry to teach a topic that we learned in an artsy way. My topic happened to be the Diels-Alder reaction. Now, I chose to make a mock BBC documentary where we had chemical compounds analogous to predators and prey. The nucleophiles being the predators that attack via SN2 or whatever, and the electrophiles that receive the attack as the prey. And I had my friends act out the various parts while I stood behind the camera to preserve what little dignity I had left at the time. Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. It was quite fun, actually. I refuse to apologize for this brilliancy. This is simply just the next evolution of art. I can feel it. Anyway, also for those that are familiar with anatomy, I am sorry for my particular choice of a fake name for our fake patient. It's just an inside joke, and I admit that it lacks class, but it's sticking because it's my podcast. So, to get back from this derailment, what has HIPAA, or rather the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, done for the world of healthcare? And what was the gut reaction? Well, upon reading an article titled HIPAA Turns 10, analyzing the past, present, and future impact by Daniel Salav, we see that this bureaucratic behemoth was not too well received when it started. Surprise, surprise. It was first implemented in 1996, and it had quite the crazy journey. To summarize, we as a society first acknowledged that medical records are not only unprotected at this time by any legislation or institution, but we also acknowledge that these records rely upon an inefficient analog medium called paper. So, some people with big brains decide it is time to enforce a set of guidelines based on some numbers and ethics to ultimately streamline the process. Their initial proposal to physicians and healthcare systems, as previously stated, did not really go down too well. Of course, that could be due to a lot of things, but let's be real. Physicians can be quite resistant to change as most people can be because, well, they're people. And not only are they people, but they are people that are already inundated with enough lifestyle strain by simply trying to save lives and fight off mountains of debt. Now, while reading this article, I also found it funny how they interjected an anecdote about one of the proposers getting yelled at by crowds of physicians because if you've ever gone to a journal club, you would know that that's just sort of the culture of medicine. Anyway, so it seems that the initial goal, and I quote, was to help covered entities understand and get it right. They didn't want to play gotcha. However, that initial strategy didn't seem to work too well. There was widespread confusion and friction, and the way that HIPAA was implemented across different places varied widely. This all changed, however, when HITECH, or the Health Information Technology for Economy and Clinical Health Act, started hitting where it hurt the wallet. Practices can now be fined up to $1.5 million, and this incentivized a lot of groups to start reading the guidelines a little more diligently and slowly, and we began to see nationwide integration. The Office of Civil Rights, or OCR, actually fined Caremark CVS 
$2.25 million for not properly disposing PHI forms or personal health information forms. And eventually analogous to carbon-based life, healthcare groups were subjected to a change in environment and those that implemented the right combination and permutation of factors ended up surviving. Implementation of offices and whole departments to make sure practices were complying with HIPAA were now everywhere and after iterative changes with both technology and a shifting society, HIPAA is what it is now and will soon be undergoing another change in the future as I am to guess. Now, I really enjoyed reading this, not because I care for policies, in fact, that stuff sort of bores the life out of me, but I liked reading it because it sort of made me think about the various parallels between the physician-patient relationship and the physician-policy relationship. Physicians and healthcare workers can oftentimes be frustrated with the lack of medical compliance regarding some of their patients, but how often are physicians fully compliant to the various bureaucratic annoyances that they are instructed to follow? Of course, we would love to believe that everyone is compliant and follows all the rules, but is that really the case? It makes me think about whether there is a natural difference between physicians and the general populace, or perhaps maybe it's just a reminder that we're all just humans and that we all follow the same normal Gaussian distribution curve. A loaded topic for sure. Now, the next portion of audio is really bad, but I think it is one of the most profound and important parts of this episode. So I would highly encourage listening through the whole portion. Skip to 1924 if the audio is too bad. Reflecting back on your career, did you see a transition in why you ended up pursuing medicine? After having gone through all of it, has that shifted at all for you? That's a good question. I had a, a surgery when I was a kid. I remember having this monumental discussion as a five-year-old with my parents saying, I want to be a doctor. I want to be that man that came and took care of me. And my even my parents were sort of like, oh yeah, you know, you could do anything you want. But I started hearing the term nurse a lot more. And it was still back at a time where it was relatively traditional that most nurses were women. Most doctors were men, and I was just like, I'm not going to stand for that. So I just had it in my head always that that's what I wanted to do. It's interesting because if you write out what you think you want to do and say, here's my plan until I'm 21, here's my plan until I'm 30 or whatever, um, I, I don't go anywhere near that in, in reality to what I would have scripted. So I wanted to go to school far away from home, to college. I didn't. I wound up going 30 minutes from home. When I interviewed at Harvard for med school, like who in the world wouldn't want to go there with that stellar reputation? Right. I didn't have nearly as fun, literally, an experience as I did when I went for my interview at Tufts, mm. also in Boston, but right. a much more fun and enthusiastic experience. And so I was like, okay, this is really where I want to go. It just felt good to me. But if I were 21, if I were 18 and somebody said, oh, you can go to Harvard for med school, I'd be like, ah, great. But then I, then there was the opportunity and I was like, yeah, it just didn't feel so good. You know, it just felt so much better going to, to Tufts. So that's, you know, the, the things happen along the way to sort of drive your course. I thought I was going to go into orthopedics originally. And then I wound up making a choice in OBGYN, and then I wound up in radiology. And I now say, how the heck I would have been miserable, me personally, in OBGYN, and I yet love my career. And then that got me into 
uh, teaching. And I, I taught um, at the med school when I was at Duke, I taught radiology to all four years of, of education for the med students first through fourth and they have a very interesting curriculum so um so i got to see uh the students at various aspects of their training i wouldn't have thought that that was going to be the case when i was a kid writing my script um so that experience at duke really helped to foster my desire to teach but more importantly the desire for somebody else to learn and then I just kept that going at every place that I have been. And I wound up teaching an undergraduate class while I was at, at Duke also because I just I loved the idea of teaching. Now, I had a lot of difficulty deciding whether to keep this in the podcast due to the quality, but I ultimately decided to leave it in because of the lessons that can be had from Dr. Nancy's story. First, it just feels so satisfying to hear about a person that, despite all the disparaging comments, decided to continue and pursue what they believed in and eventually found success. I also love how this definition of success changed given the context of life that was surrounding her at the time. We might have a set of expectations for our life, but if it ultimately doesn't play out exactly how our five-year-old selves envisioned it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you didn't attain success. It may just mean that your definition has refined itself over time. Also, shout out to all my female doctors and my male nurses. Be whatever you want. Well, I mean, I guess as long as it doesn't infringe upon other people's rights, such as, I don't know, being a murderer or a clown. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the dancing clown. Now we aren't strangers, are we? So scary. Anyway, Dr. Nancy, speaking of how there was a prejudice and stigma that you had to overcome, what is your take on imposter syndrome in medicine? Because given that we are pursuing medicine, my friends and I are often asked about medical questions that we really have no idea about. So does that ever change? And what is your take on imposter syndrome? It's a journey. I think that that's, that's really, really true. I there, most of the imposter, I mean, the imposter syndrome is self-imposed, right? Because you just, that's the way that you feel about yourself and your level of expertise. So um, I guess for me personally, for your listeners also, there's real no, there's really no fundamental difference in yourself from June 30th to July 1st. And July 1st is when most residency programs start across the country, or most internship programs can start your first year, PGY one year. And, and you're no different the night that you went to bed and the morning that you woke up, but suddenly that day you have a responsibility. Like you're making decisions, you're signing orders, you're prescribing, you're prescribing medicine. So, so it's really, that starts it because just yesterday you were a kid that graduated from med school and today you have the responsibility of 12 or 13 patients. Mm. So you right away overnight a switch has flipped and you have to be responsible. And you're thinking and doubting like, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm without a real safety net. You know, right. as a med student, you had like nine people backing you up <laughs> and, and, and someone who signed orders and you interviewed the patient also. And so there were a lot of catches along the way. But now you're like the guy or the gal. Not the MD after your name and it means something, right? And mm. you're supposed to have all of the answers and such. And uh, so for me to get past that, 
it was definitely a process mm. because then, you know, you finish, you finish the next hurdle, which is residency. Right. And then you're going to be practicing somewhere or an attending, you know, so you go through that almost again with a new burden of responsibility and self-imposed doubt. Um, so I, I think when I was writing, you know, doing more of my clinical research and people were now calling and asking my opinion or sending me cases mm. that it was like, Oh, I, I guess I am good at this. You know, I, I guess I did figure this out, you know, so, um, so it definitely was a process. Well, when you put it like that, it definitely sort of sounds daunting to become a resident. Just one day and then bam, you're now a doctor and you have an MD or DO after your name and now you're the head honcho that's going to make the decisions that might mean the difference between life and death. This reminds me of the first podcast episode with Dr. Carolyn Luger where we talk about the various motivating factors regarding work and research and man, sometimes fear can be such a great motivator. And as Dr. Luger said, whether that's healthy or not is is kind of remains to be seen. Did you ever find a point where you had to fake confidence and you had to tell yourself, I think I know what's going on in order to help someone? And how was that whole process for you? So uh, I would say, and luckily my son is not here to uh, hear this. I would say the most often that I feigned confidence was as a mother oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like pretending that I really knew what was going on when I had absolutely no idea what was going on so that I will openly admit to but um I if I uh didn't know something in medicine I was very quick to say I didn't know something um and I would either ask an expert or look things up mm. but I never wanted to mislead either a patient or a colleague. Mm. Um, it happens so quickly that you could get caught up in that feign that you might know something that you don't know. Or, um, you know, I'm not saying that I wasn't trying to motivate a patient by being strong and positive. That's right. a very different thing than, um, than to pretend you know something and you don't really know it mm. and, and, and just acting like you do. So um, you lose the respect of your colleagues, which you can't afford to do when they're relying upon you for help. So um, I never tried to, to get in over my head. So, speaking about having the respect of your colleagues and overcoming your intrinsic desire for self-preservation so you can be truthful and thoughtful in your actions and words, I would like to go into a Timmy tangent. I know I've talked a lot this episode, but there is just so much food for thought here. So, you may not know, but I am a huge cinephile. I love movies and shows, and in fact, I love consuming almost all forms of media. Currently, I am watching a show called Better Call Saul. For those of you not in the loop, it's a show about how an individual becomes a corner-cutting, sleazy lawyer, juxtaposed by his clean-cut, law-abiding, and absolutely brilliant brother, who also happens to be a very well-respected lawyer within the legal community. Now, I find it so interesting and gripping because I feel that this is a show that incites or provokes a lot of self-reflection for me. While watching the show, I felt almost insecure about which lawyer I actually was. Was I the individual eager to cut corners? 
the one that you can't rely on? Or have I grown enough as an individual to the point where if I was a third party, I could and would gladly refer patients to myself to set context for my fear. And just to be completely honest, I was always a lazy student. For example, in my high school, there was a policy where if you got a four or five on the final AP exam, you would automatically get an A in the course. Me being the lazy student that I was, I would intentionally never do the homework and never study. I would solely rely on exams and then get a four or five on my final AP test, leaving no trace behind of my lack of work or diligence. Not only did I realize that I could get similar results with minimal exertion, but let's be real, society views laziness as a romantic concept. And this romantic conception gets rewarded your whole life until the day you end up getting into the workforce where you now have colleagues and employers who depend on and expect you to reciprocate their level of diligence and hard work. I know these are things you should never admit for fear of jeopardizing your future job prospects or anything along those lines, but I believe that there is inherent value in actually being vulnerable and learning from our mistakes. I mean, how many of us can relate to being lazy but ultimately growing as individuals and becoming more diligent, becoming better workers, becoming more reliable? I know I can because I'm literally writing and talking about it as we speak, and I know a lot of my colleagues share similar sentiments. The fact is, this immature behavior of mine slowly started fading away through college once I started falling in love with the material, and eventually as I began work as a medical assistant. Although I'm not perfect at my job as a medical assistant, I have come to realize the amount of growth I had as an employee and working citizen. I would call patients after hours to confirm medications and see how they were doing. I'd go through medical records prior to clinic and make sure I provided as much information as I could for my colleagues so they would have a better time presenting patient information to our providers. I was decreasing the frequency with which I was trying to justify cutting corners just keeping all the corners intact to begin with. And overall, as I was watching the show, I realized that I was working harder and becoming more diligent. I was becoming someone that I believe should deserve the respect of my colleagues. Because I know, despite all my mistakes, I try my best and will always try and go the extra mile. I have become a person that will achieve the desired goals while also playing by the rules. And I talk about this topic because, well, first, this is my podcast. Also, because what Dr. Nancy is talking about, this concept regarding the inability to lose the respect of your colleagues, is something that was only made explicit to me through this job and this period of my life where I was watching Better Call Saul. Feigning confidence, as Dr. Nancy comments on, seems like a byproduct of fear overriding logic. Your emotional and physiological response interfering with the process that allows you to settle, fully digest, and fully incubate, and fully form your own thoughts before you speak them into existence. To me, it really is just another form of cutting corners. I mean, I know that I have plenty more to grow, but I ask this of you, my fellow learners. Do you agree? Have you seen yourself grow from lacking diligence to becoming a harder worker? And do you think you're someone that has a high probability of slowing down your response to not feign confidence and not cut corners and ultimately not lose the respect of your colleagues? <sighs> Timmy Tangent, over. Speaking about colleagues, um, one of the things that I found most counterintuitive and productive was competition and the competitive culture of medicine. Mm -hmm. I understand its merit of competition breeds strength, but at the same time, I felt it was unnecessary when these are your future colleagues that you will work with. Mm -hmm. In your own medical pursuits, have you experienced competition and did it leave a good taste, bad taste? And... What's your current outlook on that after having met that filter? So as a um, kind of an athlete, 
I uh, played a lot of sports growing up, being competitive by nature. I always uh, internalized that. So it was me just trying to better me. Mm-hmm. And I, I never sort of got or understood um, the innate competition that seems to exist when you get to the top of the pyramid whatever that pyramid is as you strive to be the best you can be and you're working yourself up to the top of the pyramid there are a lot of people who want to knock you off of that top to me uh, much like you just alluded to I don't get it because I'd like for all of us to reach out and bring people to the top I mean, so that we can all be better. And um, I mean, you're working hard because you want to be the best you can be, but it doesn't mean to the exclusion of other people or it shouldn't mean that. Mm. But, you know, we get this way uh, and it becomes sort of a culture because it's set up for us to be that way. Mm. Uh, And what I mean is... um, uh, we were talking earlier about um, applications for med school. So let's use that as an example. Um, this year, applications were up in some schools across the country by 200%. So you're competing with a lot of people. And you want your application to be better than their application. And, and it, it, it makes you um, pursue life with tunnel vision. You're just continuing to to work and not share information. That perpetuates throughout med school. If you want to be in the honor societies, you're you're less willing to help other people. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that that's the right way to behave. I think we, we all collectively get better. And there are a lot of curriculum changes throughout med schools that are helping to alleviate a lot of that pressure-packed situation and that internal competition because you have to work in groups now. So people are getting a collective uh, grade um, and that makes it uh, for a lot of people a lot better. This is so crazy to think about. We are literally witnessing a transition with the format of medical school courses and academia in general to be more collaborative and less competitive. It begs us to ask the question of whether There is inherent value in having a highly competitive field, however. The curriculum, our environment, and competency, the phenotypic byproduct of said environment. Or, perhaps we want more mentally stable physicians that will be able to sustain a longer career less littered with potential malpractice lawsuits because we revoke potentially archaic concepts such as having to work more than 80 hours a week as a resident. Ah, so complicated. I have no idea. One of the things that I've heard is that you need to succeed in the system before you can change it. And that's one of the things that a lot of us have applied as students because the systems that we're trying to pursue are not necessarily perfect. Mm-hmm. If they were, there'd be very little incentive to go into these systems. There are these various things that out certain students. With you who've met the filter, I was wondering if there was any strategy or anything that you've learned from medical school that you think should be applied to help out these students. I think that this um, particular topic is is crucial to the overall uh, success of a student becoming a physician. So um, the the being on the other side of it, uh, as you said, so. Uh, and, and now having the opportunity to make some change. 
it's easier to look back and say, here are the many mine fields that right. exist along the way, and how can we help um, with that? And I started making some of those changes when I was at Duke and invited to be part of the curriculum committee to, in my little world of radiology, help the the rest of the the committee understand the need for radiology to be integrated into every aspect of what the students were learning in internal medicine, in their cardiology, in pulmonary medicine, etc. That there was a need to understand what went along with that, looking inside of uh, the body. So that was the first time that I sort of was outspoken about the the need for implementing this. Over time, I started to pay more attention to kind of the mindset uh, of the students. And yeah, that became absolutely um, the core of who I was when I was um, moving from Duke to the University of Pennsylvania. Because I was spending time with undergraduates, I was spending a lot of time with med students and, and getting to know them and understanding what the individual issues were that they were trying to overcome. Mm. And then, you know, realizing that we had this culture within medicine that was, you know, a very stoic culture and, uh, and asking for help was just not something that, that people ever did. Mm. So uh, I have made it sort of a mission now to go back to where a lot of this begins, which is in the college uh, transition to med school. I'm working with the students to try to put perspective on, on what they're going through, um, realizing that for them, this is a moment in time, but they've still got, you know, 70 more years ahead of them. Right. So, so it just, uh, I've been able to, to take that and bring it back and, and work with the, with the curriculum committee here, uh, for example. Um, working now, I'm trying to work a little bit more closely with UC Health um, in some of the ways that we can make some implementations on current practicing physicians and how we uh, can help to avoid some of the landmines that have new landmines that have developed over time because of our improvements in technology and what that has meant um, to caring for patients today. And bringing up balance, I know I preface with you that this is something that I wanted to talk about on the podcast. Um, and I think this is a natural segue. So thankfully you went there. Um, but balance is such a difficult thing. And when we're in a situation where we're in a very high stress environment as students, I've had a lot of colleagues, um, express how difficult it was and feel guilty for expressing how difficult it was simply because it reflects poorly on them. And, um, we're viewed as people that aren't allowed to talk about our own emotions simply because that might even jeopardize us in our applications. Have there been any moments where you were trying to find balance yourself in your pursuit of medicine, whether it be through medical school or residency or even as a practicing doctor? So um, first of all, balance is unique to each individual. So my balance would be different, say, from your balance would be different from a colleague of mine, um, just by what naturally drives them or what the other factors are that are going on in their lives. Mm. So uh, when trying to achieve that, you 
have to look inwardly to the other things that are important to you in your life. So personally for me, I had a son and, um, and I really loved being a mom. So I made uh, a change in my career path to accommodate being a, a good mom that was uh, able to be relevant and uh, and participatory in the things that were becoming interesting to him as he was growing up. So I achieved balance at that point in my life. In med school, um, I worked, and I, which is not, you know, really easy not- to do, but but I loved it because it it literally took me away from the grind of studying. I worked in an environment where none of my fellow students were. I was working in a sports medicine mm-hmm. clinic, actually, uh, in Boston. It was a big running clinic. The office manager became like my very best friend, and it had nothing to do with school. So it was a wonderful outlet for me. Um, and, you know, I had pocket money, so which was also very helpful. Um, but that, from that first part of med school, was very important. My balance that I achieved in residency, um, I took up golf. It was really interesting, and it was a purposeful decision on my part because um, I was getting, uh, I loved the challenge of learning, and I would read a lot, and I was trying to absorb everything about every subspecialty within radiology. But boards, radiology boards at the time, now it's written exam. But um, you, you took a written exam, and then once you passed that, you were allowed to sit for an oral exam. Mm. And to me, oral exams really reflect how we practice. Our whole field is based upon communication. So I took up golf because I I knew that uh, if you had a bad shot in golf, and it's kind of a almost a metaphor for life, you have to really let that go because you're you should now focus on your next shot. Mm. So oral boards very much like that. If you had a case and you didn't maybe feel like you made a good discussion on that topic, you had no time to dwell. You had to move on to the next case and discuss that one in uh, an intelligent fashion. So if you were still thinking about the last case, then you also bombed this case too. Yeah. So that one little hiccup, which may not have been so bad, you now have made an entire section go bad. So like golf, you made a whole hole go down the tubes if you had an errant drive. But if you're able to focus on your next shot and put the ball back in the fairway, that yes. nothing lost, right. right? So um, that's sort of what I was trying to do is build the mental fortitude to leave something that I no longer could control and move on to the next shot. With learning how to balance yourself, I think that that's, a period of growth for a lot of people. And since I never experienced that much physical growth, I tried to grow in as many ways that I can. Has there been a moment in medicine where you've experienced tremendous amount of growth? And how did you apply it for the rest of your life? Well, that's a really thoughtful question. Like you, I um, was not uh, gifted in the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the arena of height. So good that this is, I'm sitting down. Um, 
but I would say um, that um, the biggest growth was personal growth for me. Um, and it, it happened to roll into professional growth. Mm. Um, so um, to get a little bit personal, I, I went through a divorce mm. when I was on faculty. And, um, and it, it, it was complicated because he was a colleague. And so I, um, I had to really handle that. You know, I had to make it such that no one around us would know the personal anguish, you know, to to just sort of make every day as as professional as I could. And then I moved away and uh, took a job with more responsibility and just really relished uh, that role and realized that I, I was good at it. Mm. And, uh, and I loved it. And I was interacting with people now in, in dean roles and, and higher up in, and knew the CEO and so on of the University of Pennsylvania, the whole health system and trying to be more involved. And that was the big stretch. So those couple of years in there, um, I grew personally because I had no idea I had the strength to be able to get through something like that while still working. And, um, and then professionally, I just uh, blossomed at that point. First of all, can we all just appreciate the vulnerability and willingness of Dr. Nancy to share something so personal? I feel like stories that are the most difficult to tell often have the most profound lessons and ideas. I commend Dr. Nancy's strength to overcome such an obstacle, and I admire how resilient we can be as people, but this makes me think about a gray area that has periodically been the attention of my focus for a while. It seems like throughout medicine and life in general, there is this current push and drive to intentionally subject ourselves to pain and friction in order to build our characters, to constantly grow and better yourself, to be a self-improvement project. My inherent reaction when listening to Dr. Nancy's story and progression through life is that of admiration and a feeling that I must also work on myself in order to be able to weather whatever storm may come my way. But is it truly necessary or quote unquote good to always try and push yourself and to push through? Do the ends justify the means when it comes to character development? Or do we just tell ourselves that to cope with our trauma? Just to reiterate, I don't mean to undermine Dr. Nancy's story at all, and I really do think of it as admirable and a very potent insight on resilience, as I've previously mentioned. It's just that her story reminds me that physicians are people too, and just as we try our best to be compassionate to our patients, perhaps we could be compassionate to our colleagues as well, not holding our breaths while they are going through their life ordeals and being disappointed if they need accommodations, but being there as a support and to fight against this unnecessary stoicism. Of course, I also understand that Dr. Nancy is her own person and doesn't need help from others as well, but the story just provokes that little thought in my head about how much of that could be secondary to a flawed system based off of emotional censorship. Tangent aside. My question would be, how did you develop patience with colleagues, especially since you have met the filter and physicians, doctors, they're pretty sharp people, mm -hmm. I would say. And I think that there's a lot of incompetence that really frustrates people, especially once you reach those levels. How have you developed that patience to sort of help people as opposed to judge them? Um, you just are 
rolling these one good questions after another. My goodness. I'm trying my best. <laughs> so um, there, the, it's kind of a, a two-part answer. So I had uh, a really good mentor because, uh, you know, it's the first one in my family to even go this route. Mm. So I didn't, I couldn't sort of rely on, you know, a relative or someone else that I could look up to and see how they conducted themselves in the arena of medicine. Mm. So um, I was very, very lucky to have uh, a mentor who was incredibly kind and thoughtful to all of the colleagues. Um, and in learning from that um, was extremely helpful. And, and I'll give you a, a, a for instance, this is, this is important to sort of understand that if you are a medical student and you're rounding with a surgeon, and I, I mean no disrespect to surgeons, I'm just using that as an example, right. but you're at the bedside with a surgeon and they're abrupt and short with the patient, uh, but the, you know, the patient is quite dutiful and is going to you know, acquiesce to whatever orders have just been given. And, uh, and you're you know, wet behind the ears, your first trip through the hospital, this is your first like, real rotation with patients. You're going to think that that's okay because the patient was seemed fine with receiving the orders. And this surgeon goes out and off to the next room and you're following along and they're being that way and you're not getting negative feedback. Right. right. So you think that this is an okay way to approach patients. So, um, so there's a lot of that impression that, and you have to really be true to yourself. I mean, if you think that's not the way that I would really like to talk to patients, then that's not the way you talk to patients. Just because that was the example put forth doesn't mean that that's what you follow. Mm. Um, so I had a tendency to um, be very vocal. So before I had this wonderful mentor who was more uh, even keeled and listened to people, um, I would be like, no, 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 this is the, you know, here's what I think and da, da, da. And, right. you know, and not sit back and, and like say, well, these are all the reasons why I got this series of x-rays. Because I'd be like, you know, you need to do those last five or whatever. Yeah. And no, here's the reason why. And and being thoughtful and listening changed everything. Um, by coincidence, you know, my mother uh, taught me, uh, me and my siblings, you know, from the get-go, that we always had to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. Mm. And, and how would you want to be treated? And how respected would you want to be? And so we all tried to approach others with kindness mm. um and you know then it sort of went a little bit away when because i always felt like i was in a rush mm. to to try to get things done at the end of the day right and that's driven by medicine med school internship whatever you always seemingly always in a rush to try to get things done so so the listening part was the part that i um i didn't do very well and then you know i learned to do that much better um, and became very engaged with my colleagues and, and my colleagues were the the focus of my day mm. and my work always became like a family I was very very comfortable with that that people were 
extended parts of the people at my home. And then I think that being a mom helped a great deal because you got to be patient. <laughs> Things are going to happen that you just didn't account for during the day. So, so you, you can't fly off the handle. What is your perspective on the role of mentors for students? Students are uh, just an absolutely wonderful part of our population because they've learned some, but there's still so much more to learn. Mm. And, um, and they really reflect sponges. You know, just there's so much more for them to take in. And the um, identification of a mentor, a confidant, is, I think, incredibly important because that person um, will allow them to always have perspective. Students, by definition, don't have perspective. Right. They're learning, right. right? So they don't have that measure of experience. And I'd like to believe that I'm always learning too, but I'm always looking to people who do things that I want to do. Mm. And and you don't ever lose sight of trying to find a mentor in whatever capacity that is. And it, it is one of the things that I, I was very vocal about when uh, I was at Duke. Uh, the chairman was a remarkable man. And he recognized that as the residents were coming into programs, they needed to be connected with somebody who could help them in whatever capacity. So getting to know them a little bit better, maybe they as a mentor could help see where there was a problem brewing that even the resident or the student themselves didn't know. So taking, you know, college students who are self-absorbed in not in a negative way, <laughs> but are trying to get to med school, right. the population that we're speaking about that, you know, they need because they wind up thinking, I heard this. I, somebody told me this and all of that is hearsay or rumors, or and you haven't experienced it yet. It's just somebody told you. And then you need the perspective of somebody who has a little bit more wisdom, a few more years, perhaps who has been through it, to say, yeah, hogwash. Yeah, that never happened. Yeah, that's just passed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, you don't know. And and you're you're believing these things because your buddy told you and you have great respect for your buddy and he found out from somebody that he respects and so on and so on. So um, that putting mentors in place kind of every step of the way. We all have a favorite teacher. Mm. You are probably that for many of your students. Um, but but that's the, the, you know, the person you gravitate toward and want to either be like or know that you can go to and ask questions. And I've trying to always pride myself on on being somebody that people would feel comfortable. I'd much rather, you know, get a phone call at two in the morning from a distraught student than not. Right. Should finances be a filter for physicians? My great passion is to produce high quality, uh, thoughtful physicians. Mm. And if we don't open the opportunity to everyone, then we miss out on potentially the next great 
man or woman who is going to change medicine in a positive way. And so I, um, I've tried to always counsel that finances should never be a deterrent to get to med school. I absolutely couldn't afford it. So I joined the military. Mm. And um, the, there are so many government programs. So taking the fact that you can't afford it as a reason to not go is not a good idea because you may happen along something that literally could change the course of patient care. Mm. And had you never been given that opportunity, we're all lost because of it. So, um, so there are uh, countless ways that financial aid offices can provide um, for students to to find a way to get through school without incurring enormous debt. Hmm. What is your word of encouragement or advice for these students that seem to not have anything to present? So um, everybody has a story. Hmm. Everybody is unique. And um, for me, um, I like the one-on-one discussions to get them to talk a little bit more about themselves so that they can find out that they are unique. They had uh, an event or a series of events um, or a wonderful family or something that they absolutely thought was inconsequential was very consequential mm. and, and helping them to see it from a very different light. When you're inside of yourself, there are not a lot of us that come out and say, hey, I'm great at this and I can do this. And, you know, most of us are are humble. And particularly when it comes to writing a personal statement, it's hard to write about yourself. Um, but, you know, approaching it from what makes me unique, what makes me different from Paul Smith or, you know, Jane Smith, right. then, then you have to think about, well, well how do I get to college? How... What did I do summer of junior year? Like there are things that you have to reflect upon. And, and then I always encourage the students to talk to people who are close to them. What do they see in you? Mm-hmm. What does your best friend see in you? If your best friend doesn't think you're ordinary. That's why they're your best friend, because mm-hmm. there's something unique and special that has drawn you to that individual. So your best friend, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or if you're close to your folks in the capacity that they can be refreshingly honest with you and say, these are all the great qualities that, that you have, or this is what makes you special. Or I remember the day you came to me and said, you wanted to be a doctor, you know, whatever that is. So, um, so there is a lot of, um, I think that you're, you're absolutely dead on that people more often, students more often say, I don't really think that I'm special in some way. Mm. The, The mere fact that you're sitting here wanting to go to school makes you special. So let's talk about that. So that's sort of where I start with a student and kind of where students should start thinking about themselves. Dr. Nancy, do you have any lasting words for our listeners today? I would say that um, it's important to make sure that you have always someone to talk to. That could be a best friend, uh, a spouse, a boyfriend or girlfriend, a mother or father, a priest, an aunt or uncle, but somebody. 
Mm-hmm. Somebody who knows what's in your head and what's in your heart, check in and um, make it maybe a weekly phone call if your schedules are busy or whatever, but put that time aside always that you're checking in with somebody. Um, I think it's especially important because uh, life seems to be busier and busier and busier. And all we're trying to do is make sure we're barely ahead or keeping up. Mm. And that feeling of impending sinking or impending doom looms heavily on people. Right. And if you're not ch- checking in and and sharing your perspective with people, um, you may not be getting the necessary advice back, but that person can say you're getting too close to the edge here. Mm. And, well, you know, let's talk about this or let's take a break or, but, but that's important. I think you really need to have someone you can count on that you absolutely trust. And earlier you asked a question uh, you're making reference to, do all surgeons wind up getting divorced? You know, <laughs> right. why should I pursue this if that's what I really want to do? And, uh, Well, the answer to that is no. And um, even surgeons um, can figure out what that, quote, balance is like for them. Um, You know, there are a lot of people that enjoy practicing medicine. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of folks at home that enjoy supporting that person who practices medicine. And, you know, at the end of the day, that physician has to remember that she or he didn't get there by themselves. And so to acknowledge the folks that are at home is important. It's very important. And I'll I'll leave you with a story that I just uh, learned this a couple of years ago, but it was so meaningful to me all these years later. When I was in high school, I had a job after school that um, I worked in an ophthalmologist's office, and I, I filed charts, and then I would scribe uh, sometimes when they fell behind. There was a notoriously uh, dedicated ophthalmologist who was always two hours behind. Mm. And uh, I was inscribing for him one evening, and um, to every single patient thought that he or she was the only one he saw that day. They had his complete undivided attention. Now, this is an ophthalmologist, and they're pouring their hearts out to this man. And Mm. he was so kind and so warm, and everybody loved him. So, and think about this. He's a subspecialist and a really talented and kind human being. His son went to school with me by coincidence. Years later, we were at a high school reunion. Years later. I'm talking recent. And I asked how his dad was, and his dad had passed a few years before, and um, he was bitter. And I said, oh my gosh, like, your father made such an enormous impression on me. I wanted to be like him when I got to med school. He was warm. He was kind. His patients loved him. And he said from the child at home who came whose father came late to dinner every single night, Mm. you know, that he started to resent those people that took time away from him. And to have him now learn how much his father was adored. He had tears in his eyes. He's like, I am so happy to know this. It made me sad 
that he went through years of really feeling resentment, resentment uh, toward the man that provided so much happiness and so much warmth to so many people. So, you know, the, to me, the lesson in all of that is don't forget to acknowledge the people at home for sure, but realize that they're doing their mission. You know, they're giving to other people and they're trying to make other people's lives better. And it's really nice to be able to support that and feel that you're a part of that. Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful story to end off on. Thank you for having me. This has been, uh, the time went so quickly and I really hope that I can help to benefit some other students and they can contact me through you in any way that they feel that they need to. Ugh, Dr. Nancy, you are pulling at my heartstrings. Rather more likely some neurons composing my limbic system. Anyway, in summary, we were able to go over the transition to becoming a full-fledged doctor, imposter syndrome, competition, being self-improvement projects, being intentional listeners, and we were able to do all of that while also being able to learn about pre-HIPAA and a super avant-garde art form. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the like button, comment, subscribe, and rate. It really helps. If you didn't enjoy the podcast or you just feel like some constructive feedback is warranted, please also comment below. Anyway, this is the Asclepius Podcast with your host, Timothy Jew. The next episode, we'll be talking about what it's like to be a nurse during COVID with guest speaker Heather Askew. Super excited for this one. Adios. Okay, season two, let's get ready.